Good morning, Colonial Woods. Great to see you this morning. Turn to someone near you and say, you made my day by being here today. Do that, would you? You made my day by being here today. If they happen to drive, they got you here anyway. If you're at home, I don't know who you're going to say it to, but you can say it to yourself or somebody near you there. Glad you're here today. Hopefully we're ready to go to work. Take your Bibles. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to continue a series called In the Beginning, by the way. Call out to Pastor Jason. Thanks so much. Jason oversees our technology, video streaming, all that stuff. But he also does all those bumpers that we do. And uh, if you've paid any attention or paid, they're not the same every week. There's a little nuanced difference. And every week I kind of wait till Thursday to see what he added in there. And uh, I don't know. If nobody else likes them, I like them. So thanks for doing that, Jason. We've been uh, studying about what we learn in the book of Genesis. Not just about what happened. That's important. But it's, it's, it's why it happened in it's the who behind it. It's the God of creation. And we've been in that journey together talking about the fact that God creates, that God is available. He's the spirit of God hovers over the earth and that God, when he speaks, has incredible power. Last week, we talked about how God has designed us as humanity very uniquely, designed you with worth and value. Your gender is on purpose and he designed you for relationship. And we could have gone so much further on that last week. There was so much there to cover. But this week, we want to talk a little bit about voices. It's not unusual at all when I come into a new year or early on in a new year where the Lord will just put a word, uh, maybe a theme, it might be a, a word that's on my heart. And uh, sometimes it's for the church as a whole. A lot of times it's, I'll have a word for my family or over my kids. And last year, the word for me was voices. Just that's all it was. And, and, and the Lord laid it on my heart to begin praying over my family, praying over specifically my kids for the voices in their life, knowing that there are, Scripture talks a lot about godly counsel, talks a lot about surrounding ourselves with individuals who affirm the things that, that the Word of God affirms and how with much godly counsel we don't fail, but without counsel we can, we can fail. And so I, that was my prayer. I just kept praying over our kids, voices, bringing the right voices around them. And back on November the 30th, and I, I know it only because I, I text it to myself immediately after doing so, I was actually texting my daughter that morning. And the Lord took me on a journey as I was already beginning to read in the book of Genesis. And I was, I was meditating on those first three chapters of the book of Genesis. And I wrote my daughter and said, well, it, it brought something specifically for her. But it struck me how much we see voices in the first several chapters of Genesis. I, I suppose it's probably true for every chapter of the Bible, but it really struck me 
that as you look down through it, you see different voices that are competing to speak into the life of us as individuals. The first voice that I looked at in this passage is how much God loves to speak into our lives, the Lord's voice. He loves to call us into our purpose, into our design. In fact, as I was beginning to talk through some of those things even earlier today, you'll notice that we see that when God speaks, he, he speaks purpose, he speaks uh, power, he speaks our uniquenesses, he speaks our value, he speaks our identity, and our identity is always, always found in him. We argue about that a lot in our culture today, about our identity, but our identity is always to be found in Jesus Christ. It's always to be found in the Lord, and that is always the, the identity that matters. But it's interesting, God not only speaks that power and purpose and guidelines and value, he also speaks boundaries and life and health. If you take your Bibles, I want to kind of process through some passages this morning, starting in chapter 2. Now, last week we talked about how God designed us for a relationship. We're going to pick up in verse 15, chapter 2, and I'm going to read selected passages through chapter 3 as we talk about voices this morning. It says, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. We then see how God creates Eve and how he creates relationship and the first marriage and his design there. And then chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say that you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. By the way, God didn't say that. God said don't eat of it. Now, we don't know if Adam told her because God told Adam he told her don't even touch it because he didn't want her to go anywhere close to it or if she just kind of added on to that but that that isn't actually what God said he said you're not able to eat of it although probably not touching it's a good idea too and he says you will surely not die the serpent said to the woman for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be open and you'll be like God knowing good and evil and then the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some of it and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord, uh, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord looked at the woman and said, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, well, we're going to stop right there. We'll get back to that maybe in a couple of weeks. But I want you to pay attention to the voices here. Because God affirms in chapter 1 seven times that it's good, that God designed something and it's good. What God designs is beautiful, that God designed us for relationship, that God designed us on purpose, that, that, that God designed us to relate with him. In fact, you even get a little bit of a glimpse in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, of the relationship that God wants to have with us. It says that he was walking in the cool of the day, in the garden, and that to me is more than a, a description of what happened. It's a prescription of how God wanted it to be, that there was this very real relationship that he had with humanity. The idea in this passage is that this was not a every so often thing. It was a daily thing, as uh, my mom's favorite uh, him probably is, uh, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own. It's the song in the garden. And you can't help but read in this passage kind of the, the beauty of that hymn, that old hymn of faith, that Jesus wants to have that kind of a relationship with us. But God did establish boundaries. And God did give the opportunity to either obey him or not obey him. I have people all the time who say, why did God give us a choice? In fact, there are some people who don't believe we do have a choice. And actually, God designed us with volitional will. God, that's actually another way that God created us in his image. We actually have a, a will. We can obey him. We cannot obey him. They had perfect circumstances. They didn't have a sin nature. But they still had the ability to disobey. And I remember I was asked this one time by my nephew, Noah, um, he was probably seventh grade, eighth grade at the time, and we were uh, we did a boys. Uh, I, I used to oversee. Man, I just realized how long ago this was. Uh, I was uh, nineteen, maybe twenty. Tammy and I oversaw. I oversaw the junior high at the church we were attending, and so Tammy took the girls and and they did like a little little uh, sleepover at someone's house and then I took the boys and went to my mom and dad's pond and we had a camp out back there and when you're sitting around a campfire with a bunch of junior high boys um, you talk about things maybe you wouldn't otherwise talk about and I remember my nephew looking at me and saying Uncle Phil why why didn't God just make us obey him I don't understand this sin. I don't understand all the stuff that happens when people disobey God. Why didn't God just make us do that? And, I, and you know what? I've thought the same thing. You probably have asked God to do the same thing. Lord, just make me obey you, okay? Just, just, just make me into the person you want me to be and then just make me follow you. And I, I looked at Noah, and this is the best explanation I've come up with in 30-some years. And I looked at him and I said, Noah, um, do you love your mom? And he said, yeah, I love my mom. And I said, no, so imagine that your mom, and by the way, it's my sister Rose, and Rose is a little shorter and she's, she's pretty petite. And Noah is kind of a big guy and today he's even better. I mean, he's, he definitely towers over her. Of course, he's now into his, probably in his 40s by now. And I said, if your mom asked you to go and mow the lawn, she could make you do it. You're not supposed to do this, parents, but she could get up and take your ear and say, you're going to mow the lawn, and she could get out there with the lawnmower, and while you do it, she could twist your ear to get you to go forward, and then when it's time to turn around, she could go back the other way with you. And if your mom really wanted you to, she could make life painful enough. She could force you to obey her. 
But, but Noah, what if when your mom asks you to go out and mow the lawn, you were to look at her and say, Mother that I love, you carried me in your womb for nine months. You birthed me into this world. You've cared for me. You've fed me. You've clothed me. You've watched over me. Mother, in tremendous love and appreciation, I now go and mow the yard. I said, Noah, which way do you think your mom would gain the most honor? And he, he said, well, probably the second one, if you could take all that sarcasm out of my voice, you know, probably the second one. And I said, that's why God gives us opportunity to obey or not obey. God could have easily created us that we had to do it. God could have easily created us that we were like wind-up little toys that simply, but I said, but God is more honored even by those who with the possibility will disobey him. God is so honored by those who will obey him and serve him that he's willing to take that risk. God's voice speaks into our lives. He still speaks today. Then you have the voice of the enemy. And you'll notice when you got into chapter three, you begin to see another voice speaking into the life of humanity. And by the way, if you're not sure who that enemy is, there's no doubt at all in scripture that the enemy, the serpent, uh, John calls the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan. That when we're talking about the enemy of our souls, we're talking about Satan and of course, Somehow there's this possession in serpent. I don't know how that all takes place, but there's really very little question that in Scripture this is a representation of the enemy of our souls who speaks into the life of humanity. And you'll notice that he begins to try to sway purposes that are different than what God would have. In fact, when the enemy speaks into our lives and he speaks pretty powerfully, he always wants us to have messages that are contrary to God's plan, God's purpose, God's design, and God's standard for our lives. And the, and the lies that he is telling uh, Eve in this passage are the same kinds of lies that he utilizes today. For example, um, God is just holding out on you. Or, or God just wants to cheat you. Notice what he says in this passage, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. See, the whole idea here is that when he asks her, he first of all, he exaggerates. He says, didn't the Lord say that you can't eat of anything? In other words, God wants you to die. God wants you to starve to death. That's the inference that comes from the enemy. Eve corrects him. He says, well, no, no, we can eat. We can eat of any tree except this tree. We're not supposed to eat it. We're not even supposed to touch it. And then he looks at her and he says, well, surely you're not going to die. I mean, that's not going to happen because let me tell you, the only reason God doesn't want you to do certain things in life is because he is holding out on you. He is trying to cheat you. And it's the same kind of a convincing that he uses today. The only reason I don't want you to pursue this relationship or this activity, it's interesting, we don't even really like to use the word sin. I mean, I don't enjoy it that much because the word sin literally means to miss the mark. That God has a standard, God has a target. When I miss the mark, the word is harmardia, and there's other words in Scripture for for sin as well, but literally when I miss God's standard, it miss, means I'm missing the target, and scripture calls that disobedience or sin, and the enemy 
just wants you to think God is somehow holding out on you. Or number two, God doesn't really want the best for you. Because God knows that if you do this, then there's going to be a benefit to your life that is so much better than what God really wants you to do. Now, the benefit that Satan tries to convince Eve of is that you're going to be like God, right? You're going to know. You're going to have this internal knowledge that nobody else could ever have unless they do this, and only God's like that. And really, God just simply doesn't want you to have what he has. That's why he's holding out on you. But what it really comes down to is God doesn't really want you your best he's not looking out for you he's cheating you and he just doesn't want the best for you and then number three the third thing that the lie has is that and oh by the way he says there's going to be consequences there's no consequences you're not going to die In fact, when you read the story, you kind of feel like, well, maybe Satan was right on this thing, and yet there is an immediate consequence. The immediate consequence is they had guilt, they had shame, and there was a sense of separation in the relationship with God, because that's what sin does. Anytime there is a sin in any relationship, immediately there is a bit of a brokenness in the relationship and fellowship, and it brings with it regret and shame, but he looks and says, you know what, there aren't going to be any consequences to your choices. And oh, by the way, the enemy loves to convince people of that today. I was meeting with someone in the last, I don't know, couple of weeks, and I, was, I put a big circle in place. And I talked about how so many times in our life there are addictive patterns, and the addictive patterns, the enemy loves to walk with us and convince us that something's a good idea until we do it. And then it's kind of like, now you're on your own. Hey, you know what? I would love to, and you fill in the blank. Whatever the, whatever the sin is, if I start filling them in, you'll think somehow you're, but, but all of us have areas of life that the enemy tries to convince us there are no consequences. And so you, you do it because it seems like it's a good thing and it's a better choice and I like the benefit and there really aren't any consequences and the enemy will hold our, our hand until we engage and then he says, now you're on your own. Oh, and by the way, the last lie, which is the lie most of us believe, including the guy right here, you have the right to make your own decisions and to be in charge of your own life. No one has the right to force their morality on you. No one has the right to tell you what to do. You will be like God You have every right to be in charge of your own life. And folks, can I just tell you, every person in life and certainly every believer and every person sitting here today or at home has a few questions that they really have to answer. Is God's word true? Is God's word authoritative? It means it's in charge. And does God get to call the shots in my life or doesn't he? And really, every decision in life comes down to that. By the way, I had to challenge you to answer those questions. So immediately we would say, well, of course that's all true, and of course God. Yeah, but, but really, really think about it a little bit. I was sharing with our leadership last year, and we were just talking about life and transition, and, and uh, I'm 54 years old, and so I, 
I, I shared with them, I don't know how long of a season I have in full-time ministry, but let's just say it's 15 years. I said, I really believe that what God has placed on my heart for this season is to defend the authority of the word of God. Simply what God's word says is true. We are constantly questioning, does it really mean that? And then we diminish the authority of God's word and we do that. We, we've seen that shift in culture. We've seen it in church. But does God get to call the shots in my life or doesn't he? And then I wanna take you to one last thing that we see in this passage and it's kind of a big thing. It's that not only do we have the voice of the Lord that is speaking life, purpose, calling, and boundaries into our life, but we have the voice of the enemy who is trying to speak contrary, lack of purpose, and, and really lack of God's influence in our life. And whatever voice you listen to in life will determine the course of your life. Whatever voice you listen to I would say this, the importance of surrounding yourself with voices that speak truth is so powerful. Scripture says bad, bad, care, or bad, um, uh, bad company corrupts good character. First Corinthians chapter 15, I'm gonna guess around verse 55, but I might be off on that a little bit. But he says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. The people that we allow to speak into our life and that we surround us with will have a huge impact. But the voice that we listen to will determine the course of your life. In fact, look at verse six again. There's a truth that jumps out of this that I don't think I've ever really seen before. I knew it, I just didn't see it out of this passage. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and she ate it. Can I just tell you right now, that fruit looked good. That fruit tasted good. I'll bet that fruit was incredibly good. In fact, here's what I put down. Just because we want something and it looks good and it tastes good and it even feels good doesn't mean it's good. And tell me that's not where our culture has gone. If it looks good to you, feels good to you, seems good to you, and you want it, it's good. And that has never been God's standard. In fact, notice that in this passage, the immediate result is a sense of separation, but almost a sense of shame. And the very last verse of the previous chapter, it says that the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Just say no shame with me, would you? No shame. And that's not just God's design for marriage, that's God's design for us. No shame. But we follow the voice of the enemy and the very first thing they, they, they feel is what? Shame. And it's interesting how Satan wants to deal with our shame. 
I didn't give you a bunch of fill in the blanks, but I did fill them all in for you because the first thing he does is he changes the standard. I, I'd never noticed this before, but look, look what the standard has become. You see, the standard is supposed to be God said, but that's not what it is. The standard is what's the benefit? If the benefit to your life outweighs obedience, then follow the benefit to your life. That's the standard. The standard is, does it seem good to you? Does, is the, standard, the standard is what's the benefit to your life? And then what Eve does, and I never noticed this before, she changes or convinces the culture to go along with her. Now, I realize there's only two people in the world at this time, Adam and Eve, and so it's not a very big culture. But do you notice the very first thing she does? She eats it, tastes good. What's the second thing she does? Gives it to Adam and says, hey, try this. Now, we can have all kinds of conjecture about how that happened and why that happened, but here's what's interesting. <laughs> Whenever we are walking in disobedience, the first thing we want to do is get somebody else to start walking in the same disobedience because if I'm not walking in disobedience by myself, it always feels a little more secure. And so we, what we do in culture is that we convince as many people, if I can get enough people to agree with me that this activity is good, then it's all right because we agree upon this. And you know what's interesting? Churches do the same thing. There is this slide taking place in churches today where, where we are redefining what God's truth is. And it's, it's, it's allowing ourselves to kind of deal with shame by okaying the activity of shame. That's what the enemy always wants to do. In fact, you'll notice that the enemy always wants us to bury shame. He wants us to shift the blame. Notice how that happens. Um, God looks at Adam and says, Adam, what who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil? And what's the very first thing he did? He blamed Eve. The woman, oh, no, he didn't blame Eve. He blamed God. The woman you gave me. Now, I don't know how much time there was. In fact, there are some guys here right now going, hey, I agree, I agree with that. No. I don't know how much time it was from chapter two where he looks at woman for the first time and he goes, whoa, wow. For me, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she'll be called woman because she's been taken out of man. He goes from celebration, and I don't know how long it was, but first thing he says, she did this. And by the way, you put her here, God, you're to blame. Do you notice when he says, um, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid? What's the subtle inference? Lord, it's your fault. You made me feel afraid. I hid, not because I did anything wrong. I hid because you're a tyrant and you made me afraid. By the way, Eve, she looked around to blame somebody and all she could find was a serpent, right? Uh, one Jewish historian said it this way, mankind only needs four things for survival. We need air, food, drink, and someone to blame. That's all we need. If we get those four things, we can survive. So we shift the blame and we deaden our senses if we can just participate long enough, if we can engage long enough, if we hide long enough, eventually the shame will go away. And that's how the enemy wants to deal with our shame. He just wants to bury it. Can I share some incredible good news with you today? Do you know how the Lord deals with our shame? He carries it. 
every gospel writer when it talks about the crucifixion scene says that when Jesus was crucified, they took his clothes. John gets a little more specific and when the Roman soldiers were gambling for his clothes, they were also gambling for his undergarments. You're saying, yeah, but he had a loincloth. Well, not according to historians. You see, I realize out of modesty, all of us want to think about Jesus being on the cross in a loincloth. But if we're following what history, see, Romans, when they crucified someone, they, they did it as a deterrent. It wasn't to punish you. It was to warn everybody else, you better not. So yes, they would brutally beat you, and yes, they would hang you on a cross to punish you. But they would also strip you because it brought maximum amount of shame. That's why in 1 Peter it says that he himself bore our sins on himself on the cross. By his stripes we are healed. All throughout Scripture, it's really interesting. You get into the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation says that when we get to heaven, we will be covered, we'll be clothed. He will hide our nakedness. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Not just so that you could experience forgiveness, but so you wouldn't have to feel any shame. In fact, I'll go further. If you've asked Jesus Christ to forgive your sins, if you've repented of those and given yourself to Christ, you don't have to carry shame. I would tell you very sincerely that if shame is still there, that's not God speaking into your voice or your ears. See, what God's paid for and God's cared for and what Christ carried, he doesn't expect you to have to carry anymore. And so if you're still feeling that shame, I promise you that's the voice of the enemy trying to convince you this isn't real. That thought powerfully impacted me. That the enemy wants to bury it, but Christ wants to carry it. And so when I was writing my daughter that morning, and I'm not going to write every, or share everything I wrote to her that morning, I, I wrote this. I said, so, uh, I said, good morning, baby. I said, so this morning I was praying and reflecting on a series that I'm starting in January. And the word voices came to me and it seemed kind of weird because I'm preaching out of Genesis in the beginning. But as I meditated on Genesis 1 through 3, I saw how much the Lord loves to speak life into us and identity and purpose. And in Genesis 3, there's a different voice. It's the voice of the enemy questioning who we are and God's word in our lives. And then my, my brain jumped to a song by Lauren Daigle. It's just the way my brain works but I've learned to trust God's rabbit trails. Anyway, I again, it again brought me to you and my prayer for you, which is voices. 
I hope you have an awesome day. I hope that you can be a voice into the lives of others and that the Lord will speak to you as well. And the song, I put it in your notes. I wanted you to see these words. It says, I keep fighting voices in my mind that say that I'm not good enough or I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. Am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? Remind me once again just who I am because I need to know. You say I'm loved when I can't feel a thing and you say I am strong when I think that I'm weak and you say I am held when I am falling short and when I don't belong you say that I am yours and I believe. Oh, I believe. The only thing that matters now is everything that you think of me. In you, I find my worth. In you, I find my identity. The next verse says, taking all that I have and now I'm laying it at your feet, you have every failure, God, and you have every victory because you say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. And you say I am strong when I think that I am weak. And you say that I am held when I am falling short. And when I don't believe, you say I am yours. And I believe. I believe what you say of me. I believe. Father, as we come before you this morning... The enemy has whispered so long and so proficiently and through so many different avenues that we haven't maybe even recognized that we've been believing some things about ourselves that just aren't true. And culture whispers long enough and hard enough and loud enough that we just begin to say, well, this must be true. And Lord, this morning, I thank you that your truth pulls us back to you. It pulls us back to freedom. Your truth pulls us and invites us into relationship. Your truth offers a freedom from shame. And as just as earlier this morning we took communion together to once again embrace the sacrifice of Christ, we remember that, Lord, you hung on a cross and took our shame and you took our guilt and it cost you everything, but it gave us everything. And so we choose today to listen to the voice of truth. We affirm that you have the right to guide us and direct us and conform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, for your glory, for your honor. We choose to embrace and believe. And if you're here today, You've never said yes to Jesus Christ. God is offering relationship with him through his son. 
And it's not gonna be by getting yourself better and trying harder. It's gonna be by trusting and embracing God's provision for us to come near to him. And he wants you to. In the cool of the evening, in the dawn of the morning, throughout the day, the Lord wants us to commune and worship him. And if you want to say yes to him, you say, Lord, I'm sorry for trying to be in charge of my own life. I'm sorry for trying to call my own shots. Please forgive me. Come into my life. Make me into the man of God, the woman of God that you want me to be. And Lord, I want to learn and grow and be who you've called me to be. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.